Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. In today's episode of the Aspiring Psychologist podcast I am joined by Mark Turnbull and we are discussing so many things that it might well be easier to tell you the things we're not covering. We are covering diabetes, being a slightly older applicant, being married being a parent we're talking motivational interviewing we are talking so many useful themes stay tuned right to the end to get mark's top tips for how to reduce burnout and how to be your most authentic self Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. I am Dr. Marianne Trent and I'm a qualified clinical psychologist. I am told many times by people that they are worried they might be too old or that they want to get qualified and then have children after training. And I often respond in the same way that there is no race. It's okay. It's all right to have a different start point to somebody else and that we all have different life experiences really that which will affect our trajectory um but today we are talking with um an incoming trainee clinical psychologist who has had quite a few adverse life experiences and who um yeah has so much useful stuff that we can learn from um and it was just such a pleasure speaking with him and i hope you'll find it a really helpful listen. Um, We would love to know what you think to this episode, so please do let me know of any feedback that you have got. Um, I'd also love it if you came and let me know in the free Facebook group, which is the Aspiring Psychologist Community with Dr Marianne Trent. I will look forward to catching up with you on the other side. Hope you find this useful. Hi, I just want to welcome along our guest for today, Mark Turnbull, who is an incoming trainee clinical psychologist. Welcome, Mark. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for reaching out to me. You are another LinkedIn, um, a LinkedIn reacher outer. Um, and we just sort of just chatting in the DMs, didn't we? So you'd contacted me to say how much you'd enjoyed the recent podcast episode with Nikita, um, who's recently, she's also an incoming trainee, um, but also to just highlight that other perspectives are equally as valid and that sometimes it we just take our own sweet time to get to the same destination and I really enjoyed our chats which have been voice voice notes largely um and yeah I said how about how about coming on the podcast and talking to me and thankfully you were game yes um it's it's certainly a a challenging experience uh applying for a declin and one thing I've taken from it is we can add to some of that extra pressure 
And if you've got any questions, I'll be really honest about my experiences and hopefully it can help lots of the other wonderful people thinking about applying next year with with their journey. Thank you. That's really, really helpful. And um, I, I want to quickly highlight some of the reasons why I was so keen to talk to you, if that's OK. Mm-hmm. Um, we may not have a chance to cover them all because I've got to go and pick my kids up from school in a bit. Um, but, you know, just so that we can really think about some of the issues that you've been, um, you know, that we've been discussing is that you are um, age 40 currently. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah, yeah. Are... I, I, I don't act it, but technically the birth certificate does say 40 now, yes. <laughs> you are a parent as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've got a lovely six and a half year old, uh, lovely daughter who's an absolute character. Um, yeah, she's a really big, big driver for me, yes. Amazing, amazing. Best job ever. Um, things we worry about the most, but um, yeah, you get a lot back. Um, you also have diabetes, type 1 diabetes. Yes. So me and my wife got married 2015, looking forward to sort of a first year marriage. Um, felt really ill beginning of the year. I actually did an article uh, for, for the uh, London Economic about Blue Monday because I was feeling really down in January. I was thinking about different reasons that could be. The, the dip from the wedding, not really having anything, you know, like that to think about that. Yeah, uh, it turns out a big reason for feeling quite down was I was becoming really ill with type 1 diabetes. Hadn't realised it yet. And it was only when uh, I started to crave water and sugar like a vampire. And uh, the pants were starting to sort of get really loose around the waist. I thought... I need to get to the doctors here, actually. So uh, that was a big, a big uh, shock and a big uh, fork in the road, so to speak. But one, one I think's been quite helpful, actually, in in a way for the declin process and you know where I am today. Absolutely, we can learn a lot along the way. Um, and. <laughs> Are your alarm is going off? Are That's, you going to be okay? That is my diabetes alarm, but I've, I've taken on some sugar. My sugars will be coming up. And sadly, treating the hypos not like Popeye with the spinach, it does take a little bit of time for it to kick in, but okay. I assure you I'll be okay. Okay. And this is perhaps an interesting dynamic that might crop up in therapy from time to time as well. How does, how does that affect things? Um, sometimes in a very helpful way. If you're thinking about engagement with a person, uh, I used to work in diabetes prevention, again, trying to learn from difficulties. Um, In my current job, I work in bariatric psychology, so it's people living with obesity. And it happens more often than you'd maybe hope it happens, but my alarm will go off during the session. And I've got to treat a hypo, so I'm sort of stood during the session about um, thinking about food, regular eating, and I'm eating sugary snacks and I'm this is medicinal this is medicinal but I think it can help with engagement and that idea that the person you you know you're talking to is a a real person with a you know real range of experiences um I try to I try to use it as helpfully as I can and when when I was diagnosed I was lying in the hospital bed thinking you know I applied some motivational interviewing sort of techniques, thinking I'm going to have to dance with this and not wrestle. And that was really, 
helpful for coming to terms with accepting and understanding. So even when I got out of hospital the next day, luckily I had that psychology within me to utilize, but I was already on a path of trying to manage it and, and, and get along with it. Obviously you have up and downs with it, uh, but it, it got to the point where when I was doing the declan application, I didn't want to take the box for disability uh, confidence. And my wife told us I was being stupid and I took her to supervision. And without telling me I was being stupid, I think my supervisor was wondering similar. And I took it to Facebook. And I, you even might have commented on the Facebook page about it. But a lot of people did. And everybody unanimously said, tick that box, basically. So I listened to everybody and thought, hmm, what's going on there? Am I being too positive? And am I ignoring my own role in managing diabetes? It has helped my health, but I have to help it to help my health. So I've got a helpful relationship with it, I would say, on the whole. Um, the thing is, is, it's a major, major life change. It's a major impact. And I've only really learned that from my hairdresser has diabetes and has it since she was a child. But um, I've only really learned it as I've watched her become pregnant and have babies. Yeah. And actually, it's a whole different not, – not a species, but a whole different way of – trying to manage your own health which is different than everybody else's health who isn't diabetic and actually yeah. it's really empowered her to think about the benefit of really informed practitioners who are either themselves diabetic or have very very relevant personal experience to carve out specialist roles you know and it might well be that there's psychologists I think there are psychologists working in diabetes services but there's um, you know that, that within healthcare there is kind of diabetic informed practitioners to be able to work with that condition because it changes everything you know before I got to know her well I thought diabetes was about sugar um, and it just isn't is it you know it's so complicated it's about everything yeah. it's about everything and it's about you know I think the monitors have have helped things a lot but it still affects every area of somebody's life yeah and I, and I think from a psychology point of view and it's a it, it's a core a core counseling skill and it's a fundamental but it's that ability for the health professional to really try to hear where somebody is and to be next to them because it's very easy um, and I know I've done it in the past and I'm really aware of that sort of roadblock within me but to make assumptions make conclusions you know um, it seems logical that somebody would want to do something for health but how often do people just listen to you should do this and go off and do it people have different levels of activation motivation different priorities different needs and i think it's really important to just sort of recognize where where people are um diabetes is a tricky thing because you are managing it every minute of every day it, it, it's a it's, it's one of those unique conditions where once a person leaves a room they have a huge amount of responsibility potentially where the disease sort of goes and I think people need to be respected with with the challenge of, of that. And the more the psychologist or the nurse or whoever it is in the care team can meet the person where they are, the greater that person's got a chance of having a really helpful relationship with the health team, with managing 
a, a daily condition that, that's you know for the rest of the life. I was lucky I had the psychology within me to, to call upon some of those skills. Um, but some people don't have those skills and the support around that, it's, it's better than what it used to be, but it's tricky and it's challenging. But I think with that adversity of that condition, um, plus some of my daughter's adversity, I, I think it's it's trying to sort of reflect and notice how it impacts on you in, in a positive way, but also possibly um, I'm a big fan of Leonard Cohen and one of his lines is there's a crack in everything and that's how the light gets in. And I, and I really keep that in my mind, you know, so even in those sort of dark moments, is there potentially, even if it's in the future or even small, some form of crack of hope, an opportunity where eventually if you can just get through the day, just get through the day and just get through the day, eventually that might grow into something. Hence why I've worked in diabetes prevention and did really well delivering those sessions to patients. Hence why I think I've ended up at this time of my life being able to get on the decline. Um, I've probably answered a second question you've not even asked there, haven't I? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Like Honestly, there's so many areas of, of real, it's going to sound really morbid, but interest, like you've, you know, you, you've alluded to another difficulty there, um, that your daughter has got health conditions as well. Yeah, yeah. So my daughter was born with a, just through sheer bad luck, if you think about genetic conditions, was a lot of luck in people being healthy, isn't it? As well as what people do when they're older, um, you need luck. But like running a car, things can happen. Um, but yeah, she, she was born with a complex condition a number of different um, issues, problems, dozens of operations. She had her last one two years today. I was telling you about it earlier, which was essentially a gastric bypass. So on a four-year-old, um, in my interview for bariatric psychology, coming up to nearly two years ago, I said that my daughter had had a gastric bypass, but I didn't tell them the context why. And it was only when I came off the phone, I went, how on earth did that land? <laughs> How did his daughter have a gastric bypass? This is for people living with obesity. So I sent an email while I got off at the job going, can I just explain what I meant by that? What I was trying to say was I've, I've got some experience from a personal point of view, but blah, 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 during the interview, it didn't, I didn't actually give the context. But I think, you know, I'm not going to lie. It was absolutely brutal, particularly the first year. And for me, again, using psychology at that point, there's, there's no manual that says how to get through those um, times. And I sort of remember thinking, I'll get through each day. And if it works for one day, I'll try it the next day. And if it doesn't, I'll try something else. And I know people talk about being mindful, being in the moment. There's times where, you know what? You want to be away from that, actually. And distraction could be the key thing you need. To, to be a bit more present the next day. And I think it's one of those things where if you get through the day, that's a massive su success. But people did say to us things would get better around four or five years. I mean, it took a gastric bypass for, for, for my daughter to start improving. But you know what? It, it sort of did around the age of five. And 
through going to work in that adversity, I mean, there's times where I was like living in the hospital, like literally with my work stuff, clothes, leaving the ward, bye, I'm off to work, say bye to the nurses, coming back afterwards. And I look back now and I think, how and why did I do that? But in terms of training, in terms of being um yeah re- resilient for, for me personally it was really helpful because it was always going to be a long haul this it wasn't going to be a quick fix or anything like that but it gave me a platform to to grow in my career so from the diabetes prevention work I did I ended up working in a role where I was a team leader I was training social workers on MI and CBT I was doing my casework with patients and had the biggest caseload and working with the most amount of GPs. So in a in a way, I sort of felt quite fit, <laughs> you know, at work. And um, I'd written myself off. I was, again, I was telling you about, you know, my, my sort of roadblock of ageism. And I was writing myself off in terms of declin and uh, felt the ship had sailed and that's squandered my best chance of getting on in my 20s by just enjoying my 20s too much. And somebody said to me, like, Mark, look at what you're doing at work every single week. And I just stood back and I went, this is like working like a clinical psychologist. So I thought, I'm going to have another go. I'm going to apply. And, you know, I'm really, really grateful I did. Yeah, absolutely. And I think all of your future clients will be really grateful as well in your cohort they're going to be delighted to to get to be part of your life and to benefit from your rich experience um and there's further adversity to come in case everybody thinks oh that's surely enough that's enough um i yeah really sad to say that both of your both of your parents died when you were a child yeah yeah I hope uh, people have tissues. Already. I don't know, but no, I, I don't. I don't. I don't cry about it. And um, I've, you know, I've done my crying um, many, many years ago. Um, it's something that has been so long ago now that it does have an impact, but not like a not like an acute uh, problem these days. And most of my life, I've lived without my parents, so it, it is something that I've gradually adjusted to. I, I found it hard when I was a child, obviously um in, in different ways once you know my mum died removed school I was very quiet uh all of a sudden from being really you know chatty in this new you know in a new school I was very quiet and I did my work and I was doing my work within a few minutes and I used work to distract myself from being in that environment after my mum had died but I, I sort of realized I was fairly intelligent as well so that became an unhelpful coping strategy in a way because I was also competitive so I wanted to be the quickest and the best at everything and I still have that in me but it's it's quieted down uh, a little bit that competitive streak but I um, went to high school a 2,000 pupil school just after my dad died and that was really challenging because I'd moved back to Newcastle from the countryside in Northumberland where my nana lived. And all of a sudden I'm in the town again. And the people are slightly different compared to, in, you know, Northumberland. You know, a lot more, you know, a lot more direct, a lot more 
um, sort of confident and, you know, brash, I guess, at least on the surface. And going to a 2,000 pupil school after your dad had died, um, it was really, really difficult, really tough. And I remember as an unhelpful behavioural strategy, fighting a lot, <laughs> you know, because I was so frightened that I thought if I lash out almost, like it's going to keep me safe, but it didn't. It just got me more attention. So it was a really maladaptive thing uh, with hindsight. Um but again, it was trying to find like an identity for me. And, and I think that's probably why up until I became a 30-year-old person living with my now wife, I didn't have that identity. I didn't have that stability in my life. I, I probably didn't get it till me, me and my wife moved in when I was 30. Which, at which point your pancreas decided to pack Yeah, up. exactly. Just, just, to, just to give us another curveball. But uh, yeah, I could be a charva. I could be a SWAT. I could be a sporty person. I could be a class clown. I was just so dysregulated, and um, although I did well at A-levels, well, sorry, I didn't do well at A-levels, I actually failed my psychology A-level because I had further adversity around that time, but the university took me on, I got a 2-1, I did a master's, I struggled with that, but I was so dysregulated through my 20s, and, you know, if I did have a tip for people, you know, based on my own experience, and I imagine this might be a minority thing, but it's just checking on where your head and emotion is at that point. Because although in some ways I felt I was ready for declin and good enough, with hindsight, my emotional intelligence, my stability, I just wasn't anywhere near it. Um, hence why I'm a little bit older getting onto declin, I think. We get there when we're ready, you know, absolutely, yeah. I believe that. Yeah. Um, I agree. But with my psychology head on, I'm thinking, gosh, with the greatest deal of respect, you could be one of my clients, you know? Um, absolutely. There's there's enough experiences here that, not, that many other people... I'm not paying you. <laughs> no, it's fine. You know, many people would have have really struggled with this along the way and would have faltered and it would be understandable given these nature of mm. cumulative things that, that life yeah. had got tricky. But also with my psychologist head on, I think, gosh, you must have some really, you don't need to disclose them, but you must have some really strong protective factors. Obviously your intelligence is one of them, but there's, you know, we're always looking at, well, why isn't this a problem? Why isn't this as well yeah. as why is this? Why now? But you know, protective yeah. factors can do a great deal. Yeah, I've, I've got a, I guess I've got a competitive pride, like I mentioned earlier, and um, like a determination to, I, I guess when you've had quite a lot of adversity, one thing that may happen eventually is you become familiar with it and you become aware that some of that adversity might sort of gradually chip away to some degree um, through time, but also that there might be things that we can do to, to sort of heal from us adversity. So it, it might still be there and it might still be with you, but it could be further away. It might not come out as often potentially, or, or the trigger situations might be a bit more fewer and far between. Um, but I mean, my protective factor now is obviously, you know, my, my family. Um, but one, one thing I didn't say about my dad was he was a competitive person and he had the opportunity to go to university to be a doctor, uh, like a medical doctor. He didn't want to leave Newcastle. And 
I mean, in my wedding speech, I did I did mention that, and I did say I hope to, you know, f- follow in his footsteps. So even though he, he passed away coming up thirty years, it's still a driver in me. Um, but it's not just to make him proud. <laughs> I, I said this on Father's Day when I was at the crematorium. But it's it's also to, to like in a jokingly way, but get one up on him. <laughs> so he was competitive, could have been a doctor, and uh, I'd be I'd be lying if I said like, uh, you know. But you know, deep down he's going to be proud. Deep down he will be proud uh, that I've done it. But it, it is a little bit of competition and getting one up on him because he's such a talented man. He, he, he really was. Um, but it has it has spurred me on, and I know we've all got different reasons for wanting to get on the decline. Uh, most of mine are obviously about psychology and what what I want to do to, you know, assist people in, in difficulties and in distress. But I, I think being aware of your personal drivers is really important, as as one of your books, you know, reports. Uh, we've all got them, and, and and again, Marianne, I know in your book you talk about. Um, being in a lecture theatre, hearing about clinical psychology, and somebody saying basically, oh, don't even bother, essentially. Yep, bingo. I remember the same conversation, you know, same lecturer saying something very similar, and me going, I'll show you, you know, it's that competitiveness, I guess, possibly, telling me not to do something. I'll show you. Mm, I'll get there and then I'll like tell everyone about how you told me not to do it (laughs) but I think you also um, touch really nicely on on a grief issue there which is how we can actually keep the presence of someone we loved with us in the present and have it be about continuing that relationship that never got a chance to to reach its natural conclusion in longer life um, and it's something I do with my dad as well. You know, I think about oh, what would he say about that? What would he do about that? Or, you know, would I tease him about that? Yes, I would. And it's really nice that you can still have that playful element, even though your dad's not here. Yeah, 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 I, I, I agree. It's something nobody ever taught me to do. Um, and if that's a helpful strategy that you share with some of your clients going through grief, that's something that when I was like 11 or 12, um, I, I just sort of did and it helped me with sort of getting through different periods. I used to, um, if I was struggling with motivation or something, I used to sort of say, like, do it for me dad, you know, do it for dad. And that was something I would like sort of call upon to, to spur me on as a coping strategy. Um, and yeah, it, it is something that's sort of still in me, but it doesn't come out of these days like, like I needed it to when I was a teenager. Um, I think probably in my twenties, actually, I forgot about that and didn't maybe call upon it enough. Uh, hence, why I had such a good time at university and not enough uh, studying and, you know, um, yeah, lack of emotional intelligence. Let's say, but um, you, you're right. You, you get there when you're ready, don't you? And there's a lot of you reasons do. behind readiness. But- we do all do slightly sillier things, you know, before we've got our full frontal lobes as well. So you might be being slightly harsh on yourself, you know. We're supposed to be like playful adolescent monkeys, you know, going off to go and wrestle and have fun with our colleagues and friends and, you know, coming into scrapes and then coming back into the fold in the evening 
And it's maybe, you know, I hope that you had a fold that felt safe and loving, but your fold would have looked a little bit different than than the average 2.4 family would have done. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely the case. I mean, I, I am aware, like, during those times, I still got a 2-1, and I still managed to do a master. So I used my dad's inheritance to self-fund the master's. Um, I expected to do it within a year. I didn't want to go to work when I finished my degree. Just do a few essays, do an assignment, dead easy. First paper back. Um, this is a poor piece of work, 35%. You know, oh, big shock, big shock. This is going to be a lot, lot bigger, a lot more challenging. But that just shows where my head was. I was either too high or too low. And... Um, that's what I mean about checking in with sort of headspace and readiness and, and just just sort of making sure that, you know, the situation around you feels stable enough. You know, like we might do with patients on the bariatric pathway. Is this the right time? Is this going to help you more than it's potentially going to hinder? And, um, yeah, yeah, just, just I, I guess, know yourself as well as possible because we've spent so much time thinking about the, the course what the panel might be like what to put on the form but I know you talk about you know sort of self-compassion you talk about you know kindness and patience quite often but it's it's a neglected area potentially to somebody's preparation for this for this career uh, but absolutely absolutely yeah. Um, you've mentioned motivational interviewing quite a few times and um, I know that there might be some people listening to this who are thinking oh I should know what that is or maybe even earlier in their career and think I've no I've not heard of that could you save people a google and explore <laughs> explain briefly what motivational interviewing is and why it's so good yeah so motivational interviewing is a style of having a conversation with a person and it's not about i think about it like this so if you're trying to help your child into the water i'm, I'm totally nicking off steve rolnick here by the way uh, but you know instead of like trying to push them in or to pull them in to change to doing something you, you're you're next to the person and you're using some uh conversational skills that essentially from sort of Rogers and a person-centered way of working with someone um, to really try to ask open questions, find out what matters to them, what's really important to them. Um, you know, so if you think about blood sugar, it might not be important for them at that moment to manage your blood sugar. It might be important to do something else. But if you can have a conversation about what something else looks like, you might be able to then trickle down, no pun intended, to something that could help them with thinking about their diabetes differently, seeing how those two things fit together. So it's it's really it's really a style of conversation I alluded to earlier that looks more like a dance with the patient. So I know when I'm talking to people, if it feels like it's getting tense, if it feels like it's getting difficult, and the answers are becoming short, I'll just sort of check in on that and just sort of, go back to how it's going but it's it's something you could use with other approaches so you can use it with like act you can use it with cft you can use it with cbt it's not something you you do on its own in my opinion it complements some of the other work um but it's finding out what really matters to the person 
what really matters to the person. Yeah, and then you can use that to be the difference that makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's lots of resources out there about motivational interviewing. Lovely. Thank you for filling in that gap because that's not something we've spoken about in the podcast so far. So what are you hoping to gain from training? At risk of making you answer your declin sci form all over again, what are you hoping <laughs> to gain from training or what are you looking forward to about these next three years? So personally, it, it it's felt like a recovery for me, given the potential I had and the decisions I might have made that took me away from that and then some of the adversity that, you know, landed into our lives. So it feels like, you know, it's a symbol of recovery from that. And I'm, I couldn't have done that without psychology because psychology over the last few years has helped me with that growth and that adversity and managing some of those difficulties. So for me, I'm looking forward to learning more about psychology, becoming a far you know, more helpful, well-rounded practitioner. And the university I'm going to really encourages you to become the practitioner you want to become, which is wonderful for me because I feel quite versatile and curious about different approaches. But I also hope that when it comes to retirement, how old will I be, 65, 70, who knows, um, I can look back on, you know, the next, you know, the next 30, 30 years sort of feel like I've made a contribution to psychology so I don't just mean with the services I work into and the patients I meet I'm really passionate and I I know this could be a cliche but the systems you know so to to use Dr Kamara Jones's um, analogy of the dust factory producing loads of dust giving people masks to wear treating them for the condition you know, the chest problems, but actually tackling the factory itself. That's sort of where I hope my work takes me. Doing some work with people who are struggling with some of the difficulties, but doing something that really informs the societal, cultural community change. And if I train other people along the way, or supervise people along the way, who look back and say Mark's been a helpful influence, I'll, I'll, I'll take that at 70 if I get there, I'll take that. I'll be quite happy with that. But I'm really excited because, you know, 20 years ago when me and you were in those lecture theatres here and about clinical psychology and that sort of spark happened 20 years later, you know, four decades, 99, I started my, my A-levels. I'm just going to remember to be grounded, not too high or low, and to appreciate being on that course there's going to be challenges there's going to be bumps Uh, i'm going to ask for help i'm going to put my hand up and i'm going to do my best and really relish the opportunity and i'm looking forward to the cohort itself they seem really lovely for more social media conversations i might be one of the older people who knows but i'm going to be enthusiastic and fun and Hopefully, people will not realise I'm forty when they start, unless we watch this, obviously, because this gives it away. <laughs> but I think there's so much. I don't know. I felt like forty-one was a bit of a dodgy year for me for a variety of reasons. But forty, I was just just loved life. Like I felt really vibrant. My children were a little bit older. I felt like I'd come out of the kind of 
grief dip that I'd been in. And, yeah. you know, I just felt, I felt really good. I was the healthiest probably I've ever been. Like, um, yeah, I felt like 40, it felt like a big deal. But actually when I got there, I was so proud to be 40 and, yeah. you know, to be the product of my own experiences and all of the people that had shaped me along the way. And um, as I say that, I'm mindful of sometimes people say, is there like a limit to the number of um, relevant experience roles you can put in on the Declincy form? Having read yours, I'm going to say no. Like yeah. yours went on for pages and pages and pages and pages and pages. But, you know, all of those experiences we have with us and we take with our client sessions and with our parenting, you know. And I felt so proud to be 40 and I'm now 42, having recently turned 42. But to have all those experiences with me and to have that within the room with clients yeah, it's trying to see it in a helpful way as a strength and, and, and to have that sort of, you know, brush of compassion to, you know, paint it in a helpful way. But it's interesting you mentioned about experience and I would always go back to, and I know it says this in the guidance, but the quality of experience. So one benefit of, of my career path is I've had a couple of jobs where I'm working with people every single day, Monday to Friday. And I was able to do that for a period of a couple of years in, in one job. And that for me was so helpful early on in my career. So I would be supportive of people thinking about working in supportive housing for a reason, because just my experience, yeah, it was really helpful to see the wider determinants of health at play, you know, the you get to know people and you find out about their sort of life experience and adversities and you're able to sort of start mapping it out. And I didn't know I was formulating at that point, but that's what I was doing is I was taking in people's narratives and stories. Uh, but I think it gives you a really rich experience and it's that lived experience that can really inform as much. I don't want to be too controversial and say more than a textbook or more than a lecture, but in terms of a colourful way of learning, watching somebody and getting to know somebody in front of your eyes and having that honour to, to be in their lives is just so powerful and it really helped me become the person-centred person that I am, you know, working next to the person as, as an equal. Um, and it's I, I've loved the last few years seeing the NHS sort of catch up on that sort of spirit. It's a long time coming, but... It's better late than never, I guess. Um, I would definitely yeah. echo that. I think so. I think I said in the ClinSight book, I was a home carer for probably about a year or so. I learned so much about dignity and respect and compassion and just being a really good human first as an intervention, um, you know. Yeah. You don't have to do psychology necessarily if, if you just meet them in a very equal way and you listen and you're just there. That can be powerful. I think for me it's the treating people yeah. as important. So um, at the time I was working with um, colleagues who would 
be very much trying to rush the jobs to get them done as quick as they could so they could get out the door and still claim their full wage and get home. Um, and sometimes I would turn up to what was supposed to be double-handed jobs and the client was already in bed because they'd done it themselves. And that's like, I was to time because if there was extra time, if it was just to go in and, you know, make them a cup of tea and then check the doors locked call really for 15 minutes, I would sit and massage their legs with cream because they looked a bit dry and they'd be like, oh, are you sure you don't need to dash off? And I was like, no, I've got, I've got another seven minutes. We can, we can do whatever. And sometimes they'd say, will you just watch Coronation yeah. Street with me? And I was like, yes, yeah. of course I will. <laughs> um, because that's part of being human. And I could almost see them like really puzzled. Why, why are you, why are you wanting to do this? But it's because a you matter to me, but b I don't want to be in the in the nature of fraud. You know, if I've said I'm going to be here for fifteen minutes, I'm damn well going to be here, and I'm going to do your washing up, yeah. and I'm going to change your bed sheets, and I'm not just going to make you that cup of tea because you matter. And I think that's what we get from relevant experience roles. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely, and 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 you could have chose not to, but for you, your values, your character. Um, you were very self-aware about how I would land, how I would feel. Um, and, yeah, you, you know, you, you give a damn, essentially. Um, yeah. That said, I've never lost more sleep um, than when it was my job to lock people's doors. <laughs> um, then I'd be like, all right, did I? Did I put the key back in the key safe? Did I? Did I? <laughs> like, it's a lot of responsibility, isn't it? Yeah, I can imagine Mm. Right, this has taken an unexpected turn, but it all feels so deep and so rich and so, I hope, what feels useful, inspiring and engaging for people. Yeah. Um, you've given us lots and lots of really great take-home nuggets um, about reducing burnout on the way to, um, you know, doctorate courses. Um, have you got any other kind of parting words of wisdom Yes, I think it's important, uh, and I know you talk about patience and compassion, um, being authentic, you know, being yourself on the form. Um, we're not looking to catch you out. You know, I, I couldn't say I do this and do that and do that when I've got a daughter with disabilities where what I do is a lot of extra work and support around her. Uh, so I think be authentic, you know, on, on, that, on that part of the form. I think regardless of the outcome, and I accept this is really, really challenging, but the fact that you're doing the application form, just take a bit of a moment every now and again to recognise that you know, you're know you doing that form and, and what that says about you as a person, as a practitioner, and to, to, to really, yeah, just, just appreciate the enormity of it, I guess. And... I think if you're feeling distress and difficulty while you're going through the form, my experience from talking to people is that the process doesn't half add to a lot of that. So it's, it's nothing in you. If, if so many people are feeling that, that says something about the system, the process itself. So I think just, you know, being really kind, take your time with it, uh, take breaks, don't do too much work on it get four people maybe maximum to have a look at it, people that you trust, people that you know, 
um, be aware of too much social media, but also too little. It can be useful, it can be helpful, but get the amount of it right. Um, pat yourself on the back and give you a cuddle. Like before I applied, I would have loved to meet people who got on first time. And actually, I'd love to have conversations with people who got on three or four times. I'd love to hear about them as a personality. Yeah, just honestly, just yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Just yeah, just empower people to do them, do what's authentic to them. I'm really sorry, but we are going to have to go because otherwise no my problem. kids are going to be uh, putting to wrap around childcare. But it's been the biggest privilege to speak to you, and I feel oh, like I could invite you. you back on for many, many future episodes. But wishing you the loveliest time on training. There will be hard days. You know, you may even fail another assignment, and that's okay. It's it's all part of the process, and many of us do. I, I definitely failed one. So um, just be kind to yourself. Support yourself. Look after yourself. Really enjoy this summer as well. You know, I think it's a very special summer indeed where you're about to start your mm -hmm. training. Enjoy your family life. Enjoy not having any academic work to submit. Definitely. I'm going to take a break, give your brain a bit of a rest before it all has to kick off again. But uh, best wishes to everybody listening and thinking about applying for next year. Really, really Good luck. Take care. And thanks, Barry. Thank, appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, I am now back from the school run and I've also been to the supermarket to get some mushrooms and some bread. But it is the same day that I spoke to Mark and it was such a pleasure to speak to him. Um, I'm sorry we didn't have a chance to properly finish the episode as mindfully as I might have enjoyed. But um, I did send him some voice notes with quite profusive thank yous. So, um, yeah, I hope you found that really interesting. If you have your own unique stories to tell that you think people in this audience of aspiring psychologists might well gain or learn something from, then do please get in contact with me and let's see if we can sort out getting you on the podcast. If you would welcome some more guided help and support to support your career aspirations, then do check out the Aspiring Psychologist membership. There's more information about that in the show notes, or you can get it by clicking on any of the links in my social media bios. Um, I'm Dr. Marianne Trent everywhere. Thank you so much for being part of my world. We will have some compassionate Q&As coming up to support the next application season. I will find some space in my diary and communicate those dates to you as soon as I can. Be kind to yourselves and I'll look forward to catching up with you for the next episode, which is available for you from 6am on Monday. Take care. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. This podcast at your side You'll be on your way to being qualified It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast With Dr. Marianne Trent Hello, my name is Veronica Kassova I live in Edinburgh And I just graduated with a Master's in Psychology of Mental Health Marianne recommended me the Clinical Psychologist Collective when I was networking on LinkedIn and I must say I love it. Um, it is one of a kind. 
It's like a window into the lives of people on the path of becoming a psychologist. The stories are unique, honest and filled with a kind of intangible wisdom only personal storytelling can uncover. A common thread in the stories I valued most was to be compassionate not only with others, but with myself too. Also, not fixating on becoming a psychologist, but enjoying life, growth, and the final results will come as a byproduct. Marianne, thank you for taking the time to collate all the stories. The book is a true gem, and I think every aspiring psychologist should have a copy on their shelf. Thank you.